0: you have to balance the risk with the benefit. To tell a patient not to go through treatment is to condemn her to uh, childlessness in some aspects, because you're, you know, especially in our older patients, whose ovarian reserves are rapidly depleting. So yes, you can go through treatment, but you have to be cautious.
1: On today's episode, I talked to Dr. Misi Famuyiwa. We talk about the changes in operations That happened at her practice and how quickly they happened as COVID was unraveling and which of those are there to stay. Before I get into today's episode, I want to do another one of my shout outs this time to Dr. Lou Wexstein from Reproductive Science Center of the Bay Area. I don't know if Dr. Wexstein listens to every episode, but I often get an email from him when he really likes the subject. So shout out today to Dr. Lou Wexstein. Now, In my episode with Gami today, the conversation that we get into is about how she made changes more quickly than a lot of other fertility centers, and which of those changes are going to last, and how a single provider group can adapt in a time like this, even when they are in the backyard of the largest fertility group in the continent. So please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Famuyiwai.
2: Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here, you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patients, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones.
1: Dr. Famwiua, Yami, welcome to Inside yes. Reproductive in
0: Health. Thank you for having me.
1: I want to talk to you today one because you're an independent practice that is in the backyard of a giant and I want to talk about what that sort of dynamic is like and I want to also talk about uh, when you have the resources of a smaller independent practice, how you adapt to something that is crazy wrench in the works like COVID 19 has been the last yes. seven months. Yes. And so, can you tell us a little bit? You're, you're located in Bethesda, Maryland. You're yes,
0: I'm located in Rockville, Maryland, and it's just up north from uh, Bethesda. And um, I've been in practice since.
1: 1999 and so in that time have you ever encountered well let me ask it a different way because i know none of us have ever encountered anything like covid what was the biggest operational surprise challenge you faced before
0: covid i i wouldn't really say there was a big operational challenge per se um i think we had a good flow going we were you know a small practice but we stayed busy, we, were, we had enough work to occupy us. Um, so it wasn't more, much of a challenge, it was actually fun um, before, prior to COVID.
1: And then so COVID happens and what was the initial reaction that you were, you were going through? How, at, at, what, at what month does it start to get on your radar and at what month, what timeline does it start to be something that you realize, that oh, we're gonna to have to change some things?
0: Well, I've been following the news, so I've pretty much been following it since it started in Wuhan, China. I started paying attention in December, um, and I sort of suspected that it was on the way. Um, by January, I was convinced it was on the way. So I started actually preparing my practice and myself I would say way ahead of most people. I started in January.
1: And what were those, what, what were the first things you did?
0: The first things I did was to analyze what are our supplies? What are we gonna, what would likely go out? Things like masks, um, things like uh, disinfectants, IV fluids for our patients, um, things that we would need in the procedure room. So I started sourcing it. Um, I started getting gloves in the quantities that, would, that we would need. The only error I may have made was, based on what was going on in Wuhan, I thought, oh yeah, it will come, but it'll probably be over in about a month or two, right? Wrong. <laughs> but yeah. I, I started preparing early.
1: Well, I think, and then for uh, a lot of us, I, I think that it was, I, I think that for a lot of lay people, it was, we've just heard so much with SARS and with West Nile and H1N1 that, uh, we thought it was the same thing, and I was with a group of fertility doctors the first weekend of February, and we were all sitting around uh, a hotel lobby, and there was probably uh, there was a lot of us, and this is what we were we were talking about. But it still it didn't seem like the the total response that we would go through globally was was an inevitable future. It seemed like okay, here's a dangerous disease; it's going to come yeah. to the U.S. No one at that time was talking. This was the yeah. The type of lockdown. So you're you you're you're seeing this ahead of time. You're you're keeping track, and then right. uh, you say, okay, I, I need I'm going to need to I'm going to need some more PPE. I need some more supplies. Right. Talk about the escalation. How does it ramp up as the news starts to? Yes.
0: So as the news start to go, I actually started um, implementing full masking in the office. Believe it or not. I talked to my staff about, we may need to get goggles. I was trying to read as much of the literature that was really spilling out from all over the world. And it sort of brought to mind a little bit of what happened with Ebola, right? In the sense that I'm originally from Nigeria and I was aware that when Ebola hit in Nigeria, they rapidly shut it down, right? Because of the actions they took. Um, And it did not become the overwhelming devastation that most people expected. So I I knew it was coming. Of course, I didn't know the full extent of it. But I started to wrap up. And then I started to look for N95 PPEs, I would say, somewhere around February, when, when it started getting really bad. And believe it or not, I actually remember going to, at that time, Home Depot had N95s available for painters and everybody. And I actually remember going to stand in line at Holy, Home Depot at 5 a.m. in the morning so I could get N95s. And believe it or not, when the door opened at 6 a.m., we all made a beeline for where it was. And at that time, they were not restricting how many you could buy. So I was able to buy a supply <clears throat> for my office staff and for myself.
1: Is this early March? What,
0: what? I would say, Late February, early March, I started doing that because really by, I would say by early to mid-March, you couldn't find those supplies anymore. So you you stock up on supplies. uh,
1: As it's getting closer, you're getting more. At what point do you make changes? in terms of patient flow, in terms of workflow. I remember it was early March talking with my team and clients weren't really bringing it to us yet. We were saying as a team, like well, we need to talk about maybe not allowing a partner. And early, March, I remember the first time you said that, we were like, no, we can't, we can't do that. And yes. three days later it was like, yes, yes. this is what we're doing. So yeah. talk about those changes.
0: Griffin, I didn't wait. I honestly did not wait. I, I... I already started, we started doing temperature checks in February uh, when people came in. I even gave uh, my IT personnel who came to service my computers, I gave them N95s to use when they're in the office. We started wiping down a lot of stuff. We started doing high touch. We've always done it anyway. We just ramped it up um, because usually around flu season in the office, I have wipes all over the office, I have sanitizers, and it's just something that we've always done, right? So what we did was we just ramped it up and we started doing temperature checks. Um, We started spacing out our patients. Um, I didn't let more than two people in the waiting room. And this was way in February that I started doing all those things. So call me a little paranoid.
1: So, so this, is, this is back in February. Talk about some of the other safety protocols that, that you we, used.
0: we didn't really ramp up the rest of it till March when it started getting really scary. Um, so we were already distancing people. We were already doing wipes of, of everything. I would say we really, really ramped it up towards mid march however if you recall or maybe you, you are not aware the american society of reproductive medicine as well as the maryland state department issued a letter or a memo saying hey guys we think you need to stop we need to shut down non elective procedures have to be stopped i got an email from maryland state department of health and because i also have a dc license i also got an email from the District of Columbia Health Department. And I think it was all within rapid succession of each other that all these came about somewhere around the 17th, 16th of March. So we did stop. We did stop. We finished any transfer that we had going on, but we did stop. Part of stopping was I felt that I needed to understand better this virus. I needed to know if what we were doing was enough. I I think that the dynamics of the virus were just being highlighted and not enough was known. So now it doesn't mean everybody had to stop. I just felt that this was what I needed to do in my practice to review everything.
1: I've been in the field for six
0: years now, not nearly as long as you have, but in my six years,
1: this this dynamic that you're talking about with ASRM issuing the guidelines was the most controversial Correct. event that I've seen in, in my life. It makes PGT and egg freezing look like I,
0: I understand. regular
1: yeah. conversation. Yes. So, yeah. well, so how, there, there, and the spectrum was as wide as
0: could be. And
1: yes. uh, yeah. how did you react to it?
0: I felt that I would go along with their recommendations because I felt that enough was not known. And they were doing it based on what, what the knowledge they had, combining as many experts as possible, and trying to give guidance that would make patients safe. And at the same time, you may not be aware of our governor in Maryland was also very, very proactive. Um, governor Ogan started issuing guidelines um, probably almost before anybody else did. So I felt that was helpful. Interestingly enough, he said that the federal authorities, NIH and, and CDC, they were asking him questions. So he had a team of people from Johns Hopkins, from University of Maryland Medical Center. Yeah, I, I, I felt that for us, it may not work for everybody else, but for us, it was the best thing to go along with those guidance at that time.
1: You wanted to, to, to pause, see what was really happening, get yes. the data review yes. it. Most people felt that way. Uh it seems, or at least most people did that. And I, I can't speak to how they felt. Um, yeah. Some did not, some kept going. Were they irresponsible in doing that?
0: No, I, I don't think so. I mean, I think that this was revolving so rapidly, you know, everybody had different protocols. Um, so for centers that felt that they had good enough protocols and they wanted to keep going, that was the good choice for them. I, I think in this point, there really was no right or wrong answer. You understand? I think everybody had to evaluate themselves. So my responsibility is not for those centers. My responsibility, first and foremost, is to my patients and to my staff. So I felt I needed to do what was safe for, for, for us
1: so you you're you're getting this decision, and then this is going through till when till till the end of April when ASRM issued the updated guidelines. Is that when you started to come back online?
0: So what we went is we mostly went into telehealth mode. Um, I read a lot, attended a lot of webinars. I met with my staff telemed wise twice a day. Talked to our patients a lot and I listened to the updates that uh, ASRM gave. In the meantime, I also did my own independent research to see exact, to get a better grasp of what's going on and how I can apply that for us. So, yeah.
1: So, okay, so then you're, you're, you're doing the, the telemedicine. How did you uh, adjust to that? Did you start doing video right away? Were you doing tele, telehealth o- just over the phone?
0: We went straight to telehealth on Zoom. And uh, I already I didn't start Zoom with this pandemic. I, I have always done a little bit of telemedicine because I have a lot of patients that come from out of the country, and I have some patients that live in different states. So it has always been beneficial for us to have um, telehealth visits, you know, online. It's just with this we we really ramped it up.
1: Yeah. So the what, what was that? What was that like? What was? Did you did you find it as useful as being in an in-person consult? Not quite as much in person. Did you like it better? How 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 was that? Yeah.
0: Actually, we're still using telehealth right now and we're doing an amalgam of telehealth and in office and I like it better. And here's what I tell my patients. This is the only time you're gonna see me without my PPEs on, right? Mm -hmm. So yes, we're going through a camera, but I'm gonna stay with you. I'm gonna take all the time that you need to explain things to you. I can even draw diagrams. I can show you articles i didn't feel there was a loss of connectivity in fact they may actually get more when we bring patients into the offices to do the actual physical of whatever we were doing online so we would do ultrasounds or procedures but i'm not going to have a big long sit down conversation with you while you're here you know we will continue on zoom so we have really seamlessly integrated it into our practice and it works well You know, for us, it may not work for everybody, but it works well for us.
3: Okay, so here's the skinny. Just as your fertility group has advantages over other groups, your competitors also possess advantages over your IVF center that you don't have access to, yet. Now you can say their consolidation model won't work, or their lab sucks, or their doctor's crazy, or that low cost model cuts quality, or who would ever get their fertility testing done from a food truck but many of them are on to something. If you're not maximizing your own natural strengths and adapting to what the new patient demographic is demanding, then they start to do more cycles where you are, get better rates from an insurance and vendors, take your patients and even your staff. We work to maximize those competitive advantages because Fertility Bridge is the only creative and business development firm that exclusively subspecializes in the fertility field. We have an entire team of people who help fertility centers attract and retain the right patients and nothing else for a living. So we can help only your competitors and then they have an even bigger advantage or we can help you too. Our initial consulting engagement is the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's only 597 and we equip your partners and leadership with the foundation to leverage your competitive strengths, not mimicking someone else and not let your competitors have an unfair advantage. There's no long-term commitment whatsoever, and there's a 100% money-back guarantee. Send your manager to fertilitybridge.com, have them sign up for the goal and competitive diagnostic, and I will see you and your partners on Zoom.
1: So what do you think will be the lasting impact of this? I'm guardedly optimistic that telehealth will stay. Uh, I hope that they keep the insurance reimbursement rates equal to in-person. I hope that uh, HHS and OCR continue to allow other platforms like like Zoom and Skype or, or at least uh, makes, yeah. make the ones like Doximity easier to use or, or, or less cumbersome in restrictions because I think most doctors love it, most patients love it. I hope it's here to stay. What are some of the protocol that you think are not going to go away even three years from now after there's a vaccine and there's no cases in a, in a perfect world? What do you think some of the things that might be the last?
0: Well, for sure, what's going to last throughout this, at least we intend to do, is the frequent cleaning, the high-touch surface areas, um, because this is what you do when flu comes around anyway, right? Remember the bad flu pandemics we've had in the past. So we've had those protocols since then, and we're doing more of it, and we're still doing it. So that that will stay. Um, The use of PPEs is to some extent going to stay. A mixture of telemedicine probably will stay. For the most part, yeah, I think those parts will stay.
1: You and I are having this, we're recording this conversation in September, Do you find yourself now in September having to assuage patients' concerns as much as you did in March and April when everything was brand new?
0: I think that patients come to us with varying levels of awareness. We've had patients who've been very upset and refused to do any telehealth. And we're like, well, you know what? This is a policy we have. So, you know, I mean, you can't help everybody, but that's a policy we have and we have to abide by. I think we're comfortable with what we're doing and we'll probably continue most of it because it's worked well for us. Looking back, I I never thought that it would be this long. I honestly thought it would be over by mid-summer. So we're switching into this new gear of we're, we're dealing with something that's going to be protracted. So how do we keep our patients safe? Um, We have a very strict protocol that we take the time to explain to our patients. We have it on our website, and we actually give them a detailed written explanation of what we do. Um, One of the things that we do, and again, it may not work for everybody, but we we bring patients into the office one at a time. If their spouses are going to come with them, we ask that they come with them on FaceTime on the cell phone. And one of the things we do do, which again not everybody has to do that, you have to evaluate your office. Mm-hmm. We actually sanitize the exam rooms that the patients have been in. Um, we mop the floor with a quaternary ammonium compound, and we wipe down every single thing in that room. Um, we wipe down the equipment. We spray and leave it. Let the contact time stay. Manufacturer recommendation. Um, So we, and we mop the floor. It's exhausting, but we do that after every single patient. And I think the patients realize it, you know, they they feel safer. Another thing that we have done, we've always had a high purifier, air purifier in our embryology lab um, that has also the capacity to absorb uh, volatile organic compounds because we were using a lot of chemicals to, to clean the office. So we've always had that from time immemorial, but we had it in the embryology lab. So what I did when we paused, actually, that was one of the things I was doing, getting ready to get started. We actually have the IQ air, but not the um, lay one that you might patients might get, but we have the hospital industrial uh, strength one. And we have about six of those throughout the facility. Uh, We have one in each exam room that we have the patients in. Um, We have one in the front desk area. We have one in the procedure room. As I speak with you, you may not be able to hear it, but I have one in my office right now, and we have another one in the embryology lab as well. So we have this air filters and purifiers throughout our facility. In addition, I do know that the building owners have increased the exchange rate. Uh, throughout the building. So we feel all these things help to keep us and the patients safe. When this was all
1: breaking out, I looked at it as uh, the two buckets of concerns. The one bucket of concern that patients has is, will I, am I more likely to contract the disease by going to see a fertility specialist and everything at the office? And the second is, is my child going to be in danger? Is this even a good time to get pregnant? Am I going to Correct.
0: be in danger? Which, which of those
1: two buckets do you find patients are bringing up to you?
0: Both. That Both. So the way they, I, that I address the first one, um, yes, you know, I mean, I cannot guarantee that you can't go out in the elevator or you meet somebody um, on your way to the office or you, you know what I mean? What we can do is essentially try to, um, eliminate the risks of contacting anything in our office uh, with the protocols that we've instituted, um, including sanitizing after each and every patient, including purifying the air um, constantly, um, including wiping down all the high touch surfaces um, frequently. We do that at least almost every hour. And whenever anyone has touched it, um, sanitizing things like pens, Anything the patient touches. So yes, we, we addressed address that first one. The second one in terms of, will my child get COVID-19 if I get pregnant now? Well, I did a lot of literature search and I looked at articles. The first one that came out of China, they looked at 34 men that had recovered from COVID-19 and they found out they could not isolate the virus in their semen right? We do know that the testes may have receptors for the SARS virus, but the virus itself was never isolated from semen. So that was the initial study. Then there was another study. Um, The first study looked at men who have recovered. The second study out of Germany, I believe, looked at patients who had recovered, patients who were actively infected, and patients who were asymptomatic. And when they analyzed the semen in all these categories, they were still not able to isolate uh, the SARS virus in semen. Even in actively, actively infected patients who were symptomatic, um, they were not able to. They did see that some sperm parameters, concentration, motility, went down, but the virus itself was never present. And then last but not the least, there's a seminal article coming out of of Spain uh, done by IVRMA, and what they looked at was the gene expression for the receptors for the SARS-CoV virus. So they looked at the ACE2 receptor that everybody is aware of. Um, What you have to understand is the SARS virus binds to the cells using a spike proteins, right? The, but the spike proteins have to be cleaved. They have to be cut off before it can actually bind to the membrane. What the thing that cuts it off, it's a protease called TMPRRS2. So you can look at the expression of that protease as well as ACE2. In the endometrial layer, those are lowly expressed. They're not expressed in high amount. However, ACE2 does increase with age. Now, what they also did was they also looked at, are there other receptors that the SARS-CoV virus can bind? And they searched throughout the literature and then compared it to the DNA from endometrial biopsy that was already in the DNA database. And they found things like there's another protease called tmprrs 4 that helps binding in the gut. Well, that protease is also present, highly abundant in the endometrial layer. They looked at things like cathepsin B, cathepsin L. This cathepsins, they aid the the protease. They aid ACE2 in binding the membrane. These receptors are highly expressed in the endometrial tissue and increased throughout the menstrual phase throughout the secretory phase, to around the time of implantation. And then lastly, they found another uh, receptor called Basogen, BSG, that was also present in the endometrial layer. And the way I look at it is, if ACE2 with ss 2 is your castle gate, basigin would be the sally ports, right? Side entrances. And that's also highly expressed. Now, does it mean that you're going to get infected? Those are just the receptor. It doesn't mean that they found the virus. So they're postulating that, hey, maybe more research needs to be done about this. And um, these other helpers and other receptors need to be evaluated further.
1: How do you share this all with patients in a way that they can grasp and in a way that gets them to stick with treatment if treatment is is their best course Mm -hmm. of action? How How do you get them to receive
0: it? So basically explain what we know. What we know is they have not isolated the virus in sperm. right? So it's not like you're going to go out and get it as a sexually transmitted uh, disease. It's not been isolated in ovarian tissue, to my knowledge. They've looked at the receptors. I tell them a lot is coming out that is not fully understood. there's some evidence that some babies, there was a report in JAMA that a series of infants were born with the IgM antibody, meaning they may have been exposed in uterus, um, even though the nasal swabs on those babies were negative. So, in general, any infection while you're pregnant is not good. Um, and if you're pregnant, you could get sicker than if you're not pregnant. So, I always tell my patients, please be cautious the same way that your physicians are cautious. If you're in treatment, maybe that's not the time to be traveling all over the place. Maybe you want to be careful with who comes into your home. Maybe you want to practice all the sanitary precautions that that is out there um, that we're telling people that any uh, article can give you. Um, but by, by the same token, you have to understand there are some patients who they really cannot put off getting pregnant because they'll become menopausal. They're rapidly losing their eggs. So you have to balance the risk with the benefit. To tell a patient not to go through treatment is to condemn her to a childlessness in some aspects because you're, you know, especially in our older patients whose ovarian reserves are rapidly depleting. So yes, you can go through treatment, but you have to be cautious, right? And not um, take, take precaution, not expose yourself. Um, we do test patients before they go through retrievals. Um, so far, none of our patients have tested positive. Um, but I, once they test negative, I tell them going forward, you know, you need to be careful with what you expose yourself to
1: so now that you've got a a rhythm you've got protocol for people you've got procedures in a way of communicating it what do you see for the the future of of independent practices and yours the vision for yours now that uh this is the landscape because in march i i predicted i said this is going to dry up private equity uh money for a while that had been just dumping in the field and Consolidating these big groups, and like you said, uh, you were right, but you didn't get the timeline right. I thought it would dry it up for a year to two, two and a half years, and I think it did for you know three months. And I'm pretty sure it's back. And I do know of three deals that were squashed to groups that were on the one yard line with that were going to do to do private equity. But as, as somebody that's a, a single practitioner, and you're in the backyard of the biggest group in the country. What's your vision for your practice in in the wake of all this for the next 10 years? You know,
0: the funny part is, we've actually been so busy when we started back up, and we're still very, very busy. I welcome busy. Um, I would say my volume has actually gone up, if anything. I cannot speak for everybody. I can speak for myself. Even though our practice is small, I think that we serve a unique pool of patients who actually do want to come see us, um, who enjoy that one-on-one conversation. They have full access to us. Um, I do my ultrasounds. I give them feedback right away. So there are a group of patients that actually cherish that, that welcome it. I also have a, a cadre of, believe it or not, international patients that come seeking me. So I think when you've been in the practice for so long, whether you're in a small group or a big group, if patients know who you are. They will seek you out. You understand? There are some patients that may go to a big group and feel they connect with one particular physician. Other patients may go to a big group and feel they don't connect. And they'll say, I can't connect. I feel like I'm a number. Those patients actually seek us out and they, they come to us. So I'm happy that we're very busy. So for the foreseeable future, we're very busy. Um, I enjoy what I do. I love my patients. They're a unique set of people. Um, so, while I'm still having fun, I don't know. I'm going to keep it up. It's, that's always good advice.
1: How, uh, how would you want to conclude with our audience who's mostly practice owners, mostly your colleagues, uh, some, some execs and managers as well. How would you want to conclude about, about the adaption to, to COVID-19 and the world thereafter?
0: Well, I can tell you it is exhausting. It's um, exhausting because um, we spend 45 minutes to 50 minutes to an hour sanitizing each single room after each patient. So it's exhausting. I think we have fun with what we do. I think people have to they have to choose protocols that work for them and and see what works for them and how can they keep their patients as well as their staff safe. Um, so I would say, look for something that works for you. What we have works very well for us, and, and I like it.
1: Dr. Yemi Yamifamuyiwala, thank you so much for coming
0: on Inside Reproductive Health. Thank you so much, thank you very much. I appreciate it.
2: You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health podcast with Griffin Jones.